Chapter 12 As commander of this vessel and the man responsible for your safety, Inquisitor, I really must protest in the strongest possible terms to this course of action. Yes, and also as the man whose head, Lord Admiral Ravensburg, will surely serve up on a silver platter to the Inquisition and the High Lords of Terror, should anything happen to their personal envoy to the Gothic sector, thought Semper, no longer caring about the unknown possibilities of Horst's mind-reading abilities. Julie noted, said Horst smoothly, as they rode the elevator together down to the shuttle bay. You may, if you wish, and with my full approval and inquisitorial authorization, register your protest with Monomachus, who, in the event of my not returning from the planet below, will convey it to Battlefleet Command when this mission is over. Horst caught the look of surprise on Semper's face. If, as you suspect, this is indeed some kind of Xenos trick, Commodore, then my mission is already a failure. The war will go as it has done already, and the interests of Battlefleet Gothic will be poorly served by blaming one of its most able commanders for my mistake. This mission is my idea alone, and I take responsibility for its outcome, including the possibility of my own death. Semper nodded in silent thanks, surprised by Horst's words, while he was still dwelling on the Inquisitor's unexpected depths of selfless practicality. The elevator doors rumbled open, and they strode together out into the shuttle bay flight deck. Rows of booted feet crashed together in unison at their arrival. Now it was the Inquisitor's turn to be surprised, as he looked at the four squads of armsmen lined up on the shuttle deck, all of them in carapace armour and bearing fearsome shock cannon weapons and holstered navy pistols. I assume this is something more than an honour guard formed to see me politely aboard my shuttle, noted Horst dryly, seeing the string of ammunition bandoliers worn by each armsman and the bulging pouches of grenades, power cells and rebreather rigs hanging from their equipment harnesses. Hito Alante and Maxim Barossa, both also in full naval battle dress, stood nearby. Alante was armed with his sabre and a holstered lance pistol. Barossa had a brace of holstered navy pattern pistols and a heavy bolter, holding the cumbersome heavy weapon as if it were nothing more than an ordinary bolter. Let's just call it an extra precaution, Inquisitor, answered Semper. You have your mission, but I also have mine. And that mission is to safeguard your life to the best of my abilities. With your permission, Lieutenant Alante and four squads of my ship's best armsmen will accompany you and your group down to the planet's surface to provide additional security. Semper saw the look of wry amusement in Horst's eye. We can't have it said the Battlefleet Gothic and the captain and crew of the Macarius don't know how to look after their guests, he added with the same wry smile. A fine idea nodded Horst diplomatically. It will be reassuring to know that the forces of Battlefleet Gothic will be watching over us, both from up here and closer by on the planet's surface. A klaxon sounded, signalling the beginning of the shuttle launch procedure. The deck shook under the impact of dozens of pairs of heavy boots as the armsmen's squads and Horst's bodyguard marched up the ramps into their separate shuttles. The shaking increased tenfold, as one by one, the three armoured troop carrier shuttles fired up their engines in preparation for takeoff. Semper retreated back towards the deck's safe zone. He spotted Alante climbing the entrance ramp of one of the shuttles and saw him turn to salute him from the top of the ramp. 
Semper returned the salute. Good hunting, Hito, he shouted as an afterthought, aware that his words would certainly be lost amongst the rising howl of the shuttle's engines. It was the traditional good-look farewell call of Battlefleet Gothic, exchanged whenever a ship left port for battle or just routine patrol. Its use here seemed somewhat inappropriate, Semper knew. This, after all, was supposed to be a parley with what could incredibly turn out to be potential allies. But he was unable to explain why he had suddenly felt the urge to use it now. A foreboding, he thought briefly, and then did his best to dismiss the thought. He did not trust Xenos, but he had his orders, and he knew that on this mission, battle was to be avoided at all costs. Elante paused at the shuttle hatch, grinning and flashing his captain a friendly salute of acknowledgement. He may not have heard Semper's words, but he had obviously guessed their meaning. The howling scream of the shuttle engines increased pitch even further. The very air of the launch bay throbbed with the vibration, and the atmosphere of the place was filled with the heavy chemical reek of expelled Prometheum. Semper turned to exit the bay, leaving only the servitors and human ground crew in their thickly armoured protective suits to conduct the final technical checks in the almost unbearable atmosphere of the shuttle bay, just prior to the final launch moment. As he turned, he almost collided with the black-cloaked figure of Cobra Kyogen. Semper immediately noticed the ammo pouches and rebreather rig Kyogen was wearing, even as the ship's commissar offered him a stiff-armed formal salute. Permission to join the mission to the planet's surface, Commodore. As ship's commissar, I believe it is my duty to oversee the actions of the crewmen you have selected for this mission, particularly since they may come into contact with Xenos abominations. If this is the case, then I must be on hand to keep a close guard over the morale of our men and to protect their minds and spirits from any signs of alien contamination. The servants of the Inquisition might be used to bargaining with the enemies of mankind, but the men of the Imperial Navy are thankfully not. His voice was thick with undisguised scorn for the idea of this attempted parley with the alien Eldar, and there was nothing but pure loathing in the way he had described them as Xenos abominations. Permission granted, Commissar, said Semper, almost shouting over the sound of the shuttle's engines. Kyogen nodded in thanks, although both men knew that the request had been purely cosmetic, since commissars could and did do exactly what they wanted aboard an Imperial Navy vessel. Kyogen sprinted across the deck of the launch bay, scrambling up the ramp of one of the shuttles just as it began to retract into the underside of the shuttle's hull. He stumbled at the top of the ramp, fire traces from the shuttle's roaring belly thrusters licking at the tails of his heavy commissar's coat. And a surprised-looking Hito Alante, assisted by two armsmen, leaned out to haul him into the safety of the shuttle's interior, just as the airlock hatch began to slide shut. Semper saw all this through the glass-steel viewing plate set into the heavy-duty blast doors, which now sealed off the launch bay from the rest of the ship. A few seconds later, and the image was gone, washed away by the torrent of flame, which now filled the interior of the shuttle bay as the pilots of all three craft brought their engines up to launch thrust. A few more seconds and the fire was extinguished as all remaining oxygen inside the place was siphoned away and the launch bay doors rumbled open, exposing the bay to the vacuum of space. 
released from their gravlock moorings, the free shuttles lifted off and exited the Macarius. Moments later, flying in triad formation, the shuttles made rendezvous with the waiting flight of Fury escorts. The Furies, a model adapted for planetary atmospheric flight, took up a protective position around the shuttles and guided them down towards their destination. Inside the lead shuttle, Cobra Kyogen settled into his seat harness, staring in sullen challenge at the figure seated across the narrow, cramped aisle. Maxim Barossa stared disinterestedly back, chewing slowly on a fresh wad of tajji root. The two men's eyes met and locked in undisguised mutual hostility. Good to see you with us on this little jaunt, Commissar. Me and the rest of the boys feel more reassured, knowing we've got a silver skull like you along for the ride and watching our backs. Maxim grinned, launched a thick stream of tarry, tajji root juice at the decking in front of Kyogen's gleaming, black, polished boots, and then settled back into his seat, closing his eyes and seeming to simply will himself to sleep for the remainder of the short but violently bumpy orbital descent down towards the surface of Stavia. When he opened his eyes again, twenty minutes later, as they touched down upon the planet's rocky surface, Kyajim was sitting exactly as he had been the last time Maxim had looked at him, still staring fixedly at Maxim, the way a predator measures up its intended prey. We should not be doing this. They are Monkai. They are animals without souls. They cannot be trusted and they should not be bargained with. Let them die at the hands of the abomination. What do we care of the fate of them and their corpse god emperor? Lilithan stood upon the bridge of the Val Un Show. Around her, the pig-skin projected images of the human ships swirled and spun in the incense-hazed air of the command deck. Caradriel sensed the bristling outrage of the Aspect Lord Doradios standing beside him. Others of his bodyguard, Rednu, also reacted with quiet yet distinct displays of disapproval at the Esher outcast's lack of respect to Craftworld Aniolsis's most venerable farseer. The Dark Reaper called Chiron shifted in unease, the heavy plates of his carapace armour striking noisily together in less than suitable warning. Freya, Doradios's other striking scorpion lieutenant, hissed in angry indignation at this seeming display of contempt to Caradriel and quietly assumed the ominous body-language stance that signified the assumption of Freya Shomorn, declaration of support, backed by force of arms, if necessary, towards an insulted kinsman. Caradriel reached out with his mind to cast a subtle order of calm over the proceedings and looked towards Lilithan, gesturing to her in respectful supplication. No matter what he and the others may think of her, she was the craft mistress of this vessel, and their lives were all in her hands. Now was not the time to provoke a fight. Aniolsis commands, honoured sister, and craft master. The agents of the Monkai corpse god have made known to us something of the true plans of the enemy they fight. If what they have revealed to us is true, and that is what we are here to determine, 
then Aniosis and its sister craft worlds can no longer afford to stand by and allow the servants of the great abomination to achieve their victory. If a temporary pact with the Monkai is the price we must pay for keeping the talismans of Vol out of the hands of the great abomination, then that is what we must do. The old Farseer's words sent a ripple of distress out amongst those gathered on the command deck. If he closed his eyes and concentrated, Caradriel knew what manner of thoughts his keenly attuned psychic senses would pluck from the minds of those around him. Doubt, confusion and fear. All of them focusing in shock on the bombshell which Caradriel had quietly allowed to drop. The talismans of Vol whispered half a hundred Eldar minds on the bridge of the Volun Show. Could such a terrible possibility be true, they asked themselves, in intense fear and unease. Could the followers of the great abomination truly have found a means to awaken and mobilise such devices and turn them to its own use? It was a thought few Eldar minds wished to entertain and which cast a pall of apprehensive fear over all present on the command deck. As for Lilithan, Caradriel was quietly satisfied to see that his words seemed to have had the desired effect on the troubled soul of the young firebrand commander. Aniosis commands, she acknowledged, chastened by the knowledge Caradriel had just revealed. She stepped back, her expression reflecting the troubled nature of her thoughts. Her second-in-command, the older but more cautious Alalil, smoothly took over in her stead. Lord Farseer, the humans have launched their shuttlecraft and are beginning their descent to the planet's surface. We have received the signal, indicating that they are ready to meet you there. Caradriel nodded and looked at the pig-skin images swimming in the air above them. He could see the small shapes of the shuttlecraft and their escorts falling away from the looming bulk of the human star vessel. He studied the shape of the massive vessel for a moment, his eyes taking in the harsh, unfamiliar lines of the thing, and seeing the rows of launch bays and gun ports which studied its crenellated hull. Others of his race might profess to find the human vessel crude and primitive, a typical product of the barbaric Monkai, but to Caradriel it represented all that he found most secretly terrifying about the humans. Massive and overwhelming, brutal and threatening. It seemed solid and formidably permanent, in contrast to the slender, delicate, wraith-bone-formed vessels of the Eldar. Caradriel could only imagine how many teeming thousands of humans were aboard the massive cruiser, but he was all too painfully aware of the far lesser number of Eldar, barely more than a thousand, who made up the crew of the Vorlun Show. And the humans had, how many, he wondered? Thousands or tens of thousands of such vessels spread all through the galaxy. In stark contrast, An Eolsis could only muster a handful of ships, most of which were held in reserve for the defence of the craft world itself. In his darkest thoughts, Caradriel strongly doubted that the entire Eldar diaspora, scattered as it was across dozens of craft worlds, all through the galaxy. It could gather its collected forces together in greater numbers than even the size of the single battle fleet group which the humans used to control this sector of their far-flung empire. We are a dying race, 
he mournfully reminded himself. Evidence of our decline is all around us. Each day there are less of us and more humans. One day, perhaps, there shall be none of us left at all. And who will there be, then, to guard the things which the Elder Ones have left behind, he asked himself. That was why this mission was so important, he realised. Even if these others did not. The humans were savage and primitive in comparison to the Eldar, but they were also the new heirs to the galaxy and its secrets, just as the Eldar themselves had inherited it from those races who had gone before. It must fall to the likes of Caradriel to educate this new upstart race and teach them something of the deadly inheritance which might one day yet be theirs. I have so little time left, lamented the ancient Farseer, and still so much left to do. Aware that he had allowed his thoughts to drift, how much he envied his brothers and sisters in the Dome of the Crystal Seers, who had all the time in the universe to let their minds drift in endless thought dreams, and how much he looked forward to finally joining them. He turned his attention back to the present matters. Are the preparations ready for our own arrival on the planet? They are, Lord Varsir, answered Doradios. The temporary webway portal is open and stabilised, and I have sent scouts on ahead. They report that the surface area is secure and there is no sign of any human deception. Caradriel nodded and bowed to Lilithan. Then it is time we took our leave of you, honoured craftmaster. My thank you for the protection and hospitality you have offered us, and I look forward to seeing you again, sister, when we return aboard at the successful completion of our task. Aniolsis commands, replied Lilithan returning the bow and giving the customary blessing of farewell. Asurian, watch over you, and our brothers and sisters, and bring you safely back to us once more. Squad Hyla reporting, North 2 Perimeter secured, no sign of any hostiles. Squad Hoth, nothing out here either, just more bloody rocks and flying dust. One by one, the reports came in from... Armsmen's squads now patrolling the perimeter of the meeting point, situated in the relative shelter of the strange alien ruins at the centre of the secure zone. Alante didn't envy the armsmen their duty. The planet's atmosphere was breathable, but endless storms swept its barren surface, and the air was filled with a flying, swirling hail of choking dust and tiny silicate fragments, making rebreather masks and goggles an absolute requirement. The journey from the landing zone, a three-kilometre hike across open ground, leaving one armsman squad and several of Horst's people behind to guard the waiting shuttles, had been a rude and shocking introduction to the realities of life on Stavia. For the members of Horst's Inquisition retinue, it had been bad enough, but for the crew of the Macarius, who were experiencing the usual problems associated with suddenly having to readapt to planetary environment conditions after months or even years aboard a space vessel, it had been tough going in the extreme. Razor-edged flakes of wind-hurled silicate dust flayed at their exposed skin, clogging up the workings of weaponry and equipment and finding a way into every crevice and joint in armour and environment suit. The ground was alternately composed of areas of jagged, uneven rock and expanses of deep and treacherously unpredictable dust bowls. Neither environment was particularly easy for booted feet, more used to the firm, level decking of an Imperial warship, and twice they had to interrupt their journey to pull people out of deep dust craters. 
The prospect of sudden and horrible death was a familiar companion for anyone who served aboard a vessel in His Divine Majesty's Imperial Navy, but drowning in a bottomless dust hole on some emperor-forsaken planet, choking to death as the dust poured into a mouth screaming wide in terror, there was no way for a navy man to die, and Alante had ordered his people to take the utmost care in this unfamiliar terrain. And then they had reached the meeting point coordinates, indicated in the few brief, terse, coded transmissions they had received from the Eldar command vessel, and come across this collection of strange and puzzling ruins. It was impossible to tell how old the ruins were, although they were clearly Xenos in origin, and just as impossible to determine what catastrophe might have once occurred here. Had this place been destroyed by war or natural catastrophe? Or had it been merely abandoned long ago by its original creators, allowing the deprivations of the passing millennia and the caustic environment to take their steady toll? Whatever the truth of the matter, the ruins themselves revealed little. The Imperial men had initially mistaken the buildings for natural rock formations when they had first seen them looming out of the shifting curtain of the dust storm. It was only as they drew closer that they saw there was a guiding intelligence to their lines and unusual symmetry. Elante ran a hand over the stonework beside him, marvelling at the strange, melted wax look of the material. Shot through with rainbow streaks of mixed colour and with an oddly viscous quality, it was more like plastic than stonework. He took his hand away, disturbed by the faint, crackling sensation which he felt, even through the material of his gloves. Static electricity, we think, commented Horst, appearing suddenly beside him. It seems to repel the dust, which must have been why this place wasn't buried under the stuff long ago. How it's generated or how the integrity of the field has been maintained for maybe thousands of years is something none of my people have yet been able to explain. Alante snapped to attention in the Inquisitor's presence. Horse settled himself down on a nearby piece of stonework. It might have been the beginnings of a piece of oddly formed statuary, a chair or the leftover stump of a pillar, and signalled the young navy officer to relax. At ease, Lieutenant. Your captain and Admiral Pardain aren't here now, and I never want to stand on ceremony once I'm out in the field. I assume your patrols haven't found anything yet. If Ulante felt any discomfort in the presence of this Inquisitor, who had been sent to the Gothic Sector as the personal envoy of the High Lords of Terror themselves, he didn't allow it to show. Nothing at all, he replied. I'm coordinating our patrol efforts with your man Stavka. If anything tries to cross any point along the joint perimeter, we'll know about it soon enough. No word from the Macarius. The dust storm and the strange composition of the mica fragments it was composed of was making long-range comms transmissions from the planet's surface something of a problem. Not to mention the effects of the unpredictable electronic interference from this system's binary star pulsar. They had been able to talk to the Macarius since their arrival on the surface of Stabia, but sometimes only intermittently, and all such communications had been an ongoing struggle against the natural forces which ruled the planet Stavia and its solar system. I was able to speak briefly to your captain some minutes ago. They're maintaining a careful watch on the Eldar command ship, but so far there's no sign of them launching any kind of shuttlecraft. Elante looked at Horst, both men wondering the same thing. Which rather begs the question, sir. 
if they didn't get here before us, and they don't seem to be in too much of a hurry to get down here by shuttle, then how exactly do they plan to put in an appearance at this rendezvous? Horst nodded. Tell me the truth, Lieutenant. What do you really think of this mission? Don't be afraid to speak your mind. Volante paused, considering his reply carefully before offering it to the Inquisitor. As I said to Captain Semper, sir, if I were seeking to lure an enemy into a trap, then this system would be perfect for my purposes. And now, here we are, on a planet within that system, on unfamiliar terrain, bogged down by unfavourable atmospheric conditions, with unreliable communications, and waiting for someone who doesn't seem in too much of a hurry to present himself. Volante broke off, hesitating for a moment, and then looked directly at Horst. If you ask me, Inquisitor, this entire mission is just one big ambush waiting to happen. Horst uttered a sharp, barking laugh, and clapped a hand on Alante's shoulder, leaning on him as he hauled himself to his feet again. <laughs> Perhaps you should talk more with Stavka, Lieutenant, since he's very much of the same opinion. Well spoken, Hito. The Emperor needs more servants who aren't afraid to tell a senior Inquisitor that he's most likely walked straight into an obvious trap. If you ever tire of service in the Navy, I could always use a man like you in my own organization. Elante opened his mouth to answer, intending to politely decline the Inquisitor's tentative but apparently serious offer, but was abruptly cut off by a strange, hissing scream which came from somewhere close amongst the ruins. The very molecules of the air seemed to vibrate with the force of the thing, and, at the same time, the swirling maelstrom of the dust storm was lit up by a eye-searing flash of light. An explosion! shouted Alante, drawing his last pistol and placing himself protectively in front of Horst. An orbital strike, possibly! We're under attack! More like a teleportation shockwave, answered Horst, knowing that even this was not strictly true. Teleportation technology was rare enough amongst the forces of the Imperium. Only the space marines of the Adeptus Astartes were equipped to withstand its potentially lethal rigours, and he had found no recorded evidence of its use amongst the Eldar. Nevertheless, piecing together many fragmented clues and suppositions, there was plenty of evidence to suggest that the Eldar race possessed some advanced form of transportation technology unknown to the Imperium, since there were so many reports of Eldar raids appearing suddenly on a planet's surface after somehow having been able to completely bypass and elude any orbital or planetary system defences which might have been in place. Indeed, despite the numerous encounters between Eldar and Imperium naval forces, and the confirmed sightings of the same Eldar ship at points many light-years apart from each other, there was a great body of evidence to suggest that the Eldar ships were not even equipped with warp-drive technology. If they did not have warp engines, how then were they able to travel the distances between the stars? There is so much we do not know or understand about them, Horst thought to himself, drawing his weapon and moving towards the source of the unknown phenomenon. Perhaps I am a fool, then, to have trusted such creatures and to have put myself and these other loyal servants of the Emperor in such jeopardy. They were outside now, in a clearing in the centre of the ruins, the figures of armsmen and horse bodyguards appeared from amongst the swirling dust screen, drawing protectively towards Horst and Dulante. All of them had their weapons drawn. On the Vox channels, there was a babble of excited, panicked voices sounding over the crackling hiss of the storm. One of Stavka's men 
struggled with the settings of an Orspex device, receiving back from it only a static scream which was a lesser echo of the larger sound which still filled the air all around them. Switch that thing off, ordered Stavka, angrily, striding forward out of the dusty murk, wielding a combat shotgun and issuing commands to those around him. Use your infrared filters. Advance in three-man squads. Keep in touch with the squads around you. Find whatever the hell that blast came from and be prepared to fire upon hostiles. No. No firing unless you're fired upon first, bellowed Horst, countermanding his second-in-command's order. I repeat, hold your fire. Whatever comes out of this dust, the first man who fires upon it without provocation will be summarily executed. I speak in the name of the Emperor's Inquisition. There was a light glowing through the swirling dust ahead of them. From their initial reconnoitre of the ruins, Olante estimated it to be coming from an area containing a wide circle of unusual freestanding monolith structures. The area and the structures had been investigated by Horst's people, but, as with so much else here, little had been determined about them including for what purpose they might have originally been constructed. Taking a firmer hold of his last pistol, Elante had a distinct feeling that they were perhaps about to find out. He felt a presence beside him, and heard a surprisingly familiar voice whispering the words of an ecclesiarchy-approved catechism of blessed protection. The voice may have been familiar, but the tone of nervous fear in it was not. Elante turned in surprise, seeing Commissar Kyogen at his shoulder. The big ship's commissar gripped the handle of his chainsaw tightly, staring into the concealing curtain of the dust storm, a look of glassy fear in his eyes. Elante did not like the cold and detached Kyogen. As far as he was aware, no one aboard the Macarius had ever warmed to the man, but he did not doubt the commissar's courage or ability. Now, for the first time, he saw fear in the man and Kaijin's secret weakness was exposed to him. Aliens, thought Ulante, knowing the fear and horror which imperial anti-alien propaganda had successfully installed into so many of the Emperor's subjects. He's afraid of anything Xenos bred. The light was dimming now, fading away along with that hellish sound, and an uneasy stillness fell over the scene. For a few moments nothing happened, and then they appeared out of the swirling murk of the dust storm. One second they were not there, and the next they were. From seemingly nowhere they appeared, tall and graceful figures, long and lithe of limb, clad in armour which in stark contrast to the functional armour worn by the servants of the Imperium had been constructed with artistry as much in mind as practicality. They carried weapons whose unfamiliar, elegant lines did not disguise their clearly lethal intent. The advance line of Eldar warriors stopped, aggressively sweeping the barrels of their weapons in arcs back and forth along the line of human troops. Nervous fingers hovered over gun triggers and firing studs. Mutual suspicion and animosity crackled in the air between the two groups. An Eldar warrior, taller and more magnificently armoured than the others, stepped forward, taking in the vista of nervous, afraid human faces with one sweeping, arrogant glance. His gaze settled for a moment on Olante, and the young Navy lieutenant had to restrain the urge to protectively bring his weapon up to bear as he felt the alien's keen and frigid intellect focusing briefly upon him. A cold, mocking smile flickered across the creature's delicate, almost albino features, and then it suddenly stepped back, 
He neither gestured nor said anything to its companions, but Alante was left with the distinct impression that some kind of secret communication had just taken place. The advance line of Eldar opened up in its centre, and another, smaller group of aliens advanced towards the watching humans. Most of them were in armour, uh, clustering protectively around a figure in their centre, and then, at a gestured command from that figure, the rest of the group stopped and grudgingly allowed the figure to advance toward the humans on its own. This second Eldar carried an aura which drew every human eye upon him. He looked more frail and slow than the others, and even though Helante had never seen an Eldar before and had no means of judging such things in their terms, there was an unmistakable sense of venerable age about him, and a great wisdom too, held in those almond eyes. The Eldar scanned the ranks of the humans, that unsettling, inscrutable gaze quickly coming to rest on Inquisitor Horst. The Eldar took several more steps forward, until it stood before Horst. The two beings, human and Eldar, regarded each other for a moment, the tall, slim Eldar towering almost half a metre above Horst. Then the alien gracefully inclined its head and executed what might have been a respectful bow. Welcome, human called Horst, it said in perfectly spoken but strangely enunciated High Gothic. This one, you would term I, is kin called Caradriel, second born of the union of Kai Danai and Darandara, and honoured to be the far-seeing one of the craft world Aniolsis. You called into the void, brother, and I have answered. And now we have much to discuss. Chapter 13 On the surface of Stabia, the parley had begun. Out in space, on the fringes of the Stabia system, the battle was also beginning. The sword-class frigate Volpum was patrolling the system's perimeter and maintaining a close watch on the Eldar vessel doing likewise. Or at least thought the vessel's angry and frustrated captain, Vanyan Karasev, that was what they were supposed to be doing. Karasev was that rarity in Battlefleet Gothic, a ship's captain who did not belong to the traditional and sprawling naval aristocracy class of Cipramundian nobility, which had produced officers and captains for every battlefleet in the Segmentum Obscurus since time immemorial. Karasev had achieved his rank purely through his own drive and ability, and, secretly amongst the upper cadre, of Battlefleet Command, great things were expected of him. The captaincy of a capital-class vessel would one day be his, although Karasev himself suspected that, had he been one of the Cipramundian elite, he would probably already be standing on the bridge of a lunar or Gothic-class cruiser somewhere, directing the wrath of the Emperor directly upon the enemies of mankind. Not that he took his current command or mission less seriously, but at that moment his fiery Stranoverite temper was up. As for the fourth time in as many hours, his surveyor officers had once again allowed the Eldar vessel ahead of them to slip out of the reach of his vessel's scanners. In truth, he knew it was not his crew's fault. The Eldar vessel had been arrogantly showing off, almost taunting them, as it executed a bewildering series of complex manoeuvres, shocking them with its sudden turns of speed and confounding the abilities of their surveyor systems by modulating the density and frequency of its energy signature. 
ultimately fading away completely from their August screens and then appearing elsewhere from its last reported or estimated position in a sudden flare of energy signal. And now it was gone again, disappearing from their surveyor screens after executing a rapid turn sunwards and vanishing without trace. Like many ambitious men, Karasev was neither patient nor understanding, and the mood on the command deck of the Volpoon was tense as his crew endeavoured to re-establish surveyor contact with the alien ship as their commander hovered ominously over them. Surveyor contact! Two AUs to starboard and closing! declared a surveyor officer almost triumphantly. Clarify! barked Karasev, already troubled by this latest development. A shared look with his second-in-command confirmed the same thought. At its last recorded position, the Eldar ship was ahead of them and pulling away from them at speed. Now it had somehow slipped round their starboard flank and was closing on them instead, appearing from out of nowhere and at an alarmingly close distance. Definitely closing! confirmed the ship's chief surveyor officer, reading the data from his control lectern screen. Energy signature is completely changed from the last time we acquired it. It's... The officer suddenly broke off and looked at his captain in confusion. According to these readings, it's an imperial ship, a Praetor-class frigate. Karasev and his second-in-command exchanged surprised looks. Someone's a long way from home, noted the second-in-command dryly. The Praetor-class vessel was in service amongst many of the local Imperium battle fleets of the Ultima Segmentum, but as far as Karasev was aware, it had never been used within the Segmentum Obscurus, and certainly not by Battlefleet Gothic. More to the point! Why weren't we told there were other Imperium forces in the area? said Karasev, trying to conceal the uncertainty he was feeling. Everything about this mission had been unorthodox so far, to say the least. Could it be possible that there was indeed another, more secret, Imperium force in the system, sent along to provide additional security for Semper's battle squadron? I want to see this thing on Vidpict. I want more information on it. Open hailing frequencies and identify its transponder codes or energy signature. I want to know exactly what vessel it is. The bridge crew went to work, carrying out their captain's orders. The main August screen crackled into life, displaying the hazy, reconstructed image being picked up by the ship's August systems. Seeing the image on the screen, Karasev allowed himself to relax a little as he recognised the unmistakable and reassuring hull shape of an Imperium warship. Still, the outline of the ship seemed to oddly waver and flicker. Karasev looked in silent question towards his chief of surveyors. Probably a vidpect uh, interference from the pulsar, commented the officer. This whole system's just one big electromagnetic swamp. It was a reasonable enough explanation, Karasev knew. Emperor knew they had had enough trouble with the surveyor system since the moment they had arrived in this blighted excuse of a star system. But something deeply worried him about the situation. Something was wrong here, he knew but he just could not see what. The reports from his bridge crew did little to dispel his unease. Comms channels are garbled. They could be spill from the pulsar, but we're getting nothing on the hailing frequencies. We can't pick up any transponder coding from the vessel. Vessel's drawing closer. Nothing in the registry to identify it. Karasev looked at the screen, seeing the ship continue its silent, steady approach. The feeling of unease worsened. He was just about to order a course change away from the ship, 
and for the Volpoon's gun batteries to be run out and ready to fire, when the image on the screen suddenly warped for a second. At first, he thought it was just more vid-picked interference. But then he told himself that, no, it had definitely been the image of the ship itself which had changed, while the star field behind it remained in clear focus. For a moment, just the briefest of moments, the image of the frigate had flickered off, revealing the merest snatched glimpse of something else behind or beyond the facade of that image. Another ship, Karasev told himself irrationally, unable to deny what he had just seen with his own eyes. It's a projection, concealing a completely different ship. Battle stations, all power to defence shields. The order was only half out of his mouth when he saw the second impossible thing happening on the August screen before him. Torpedoes, fired from a prow which had no torpedo tubes. Suddenly, there were torpedoes streaking through space towards his vessel, travelling at a velocity no Imperium-made torpedo could match. Karasev stared sickly at the data on his command lectern, seeing the torpedoes eat up the distance between them and his vessel, and knowing that he had made the greatest and final mistake of his career. A caustic Stranoverite oaf, which could never have come from any Cipramundian aristocrat, escaped from his lips. Signal the Macarius, he ordered, determined to at least give some useful purpose to his final moments. Tell them we have been betrayed, and we are under attack from the Eldar. Moments later, the torpedoes struck home. The Volpoon, its 800 crew, and Captain Vanyan Karasev, and his highly promising career disappeared together in an abrupt and fiery conclusion. The Volpoon's killer cruised forward, slipping harmlessly past the expanding cloud of wreckage of the destroyed Imperial frigate, effortlessly shrugging off the false ship image projected by its mimic engines. The image of the Praetor-class frigate wavered and faded away. In its place was the sinister and predatory shape of a dark Eldar cruiser, the strange black material of its smooth, featureless and shell-like hull seeming to draw in the light from the star field around it. On board the vessel's bridge, the dark Eldar commander savoured the thrill of the kill, while lamenting the necessity of having to completely destroy the human vessel without being allowed to take prisoners. Slaves, whoever intended for use as sacrifices, torture fodder, cruel and terrible homunculi experimentation, or merely forced labour with a currency of her kind, and a ship's captain who returned from a raiding mission with their slave holds full of fresh, valuable new flesh, could expect to receive the favour of their cabal lord. This, however, was no mere raiding mission and there were greater prizes at stake here than the opportunity to take a few hundred human slaves. The cabal of the Poison Heart had lost much prestige and status in the recent witch-cult schism which had convulsed Camorra society, and the cabal's fortunes had waned as those of its enemies had risen. Shorn of many of its traditional allies, most of whom had been all too happy to abandon packs made more out of fear than respect or loyalty, and go over to the side of their enemies, the Cabal had been left isolated and facing extinction. In the deadly, ever-shifting pattern of brutal intrigue, assassinations, and constant internecine warfare that passed for politics in Camorra, 
The Cabal of the Poison Heart would not be the first ancient clan to be wiped out, without trace or subsumed completely into the ranks of a more powerful rival. And it would certainly not be the last. Archon Saticus, however, could not have maintained his position as Cabal Lord of the Poison Heart for these last few thousand years, ruthlessly dispatching countless claimants and pretenders to the title, without possessing some measure of cunning and guile. This secret alliance with the creature known as Abaddon the Despoiler would, if it were to become known to the rest of their kind, be enough to ensure the Poison Heart's swift and certain destruction by the combined might of all the Cabals and Camorra. But as there were great risks in this venture, so too were there potentially great rewards. To arrive back in Camorra with holds full of thousands of human slaves, not mere substandard civilian chattel gathered in plunder raids on isolated settlements and colonies, but the finest specimens from the crews of the humans' warships, strong bodies and more resistant flesh, capable of withstanding greater and crueler abominations than their weaker brethren. But there was better than that. To arrive back in Camorra with a prize greater than more mere Monkai slaves, to display before the other cabals hundreds, or perhaps even thousands, of those who were once their kin, but who long ago abandoned the inhabitants of Camorra to their fate at the hands of the great devourer, and who denied them a place of safety amongst their own ranks. Yes, what tortures, what exquisite, long-lasting suffering, wouldn't any of her kind wish to see visited upon those most hated of their former brothers, the Eldar of the Craftworlds? But, oh yes, there was even better than that, to arrive back in Camorra with a prize greater even than so many Craftworld Eldar, a prize great enough to make Lord Sitarkas risk all to capture it, even the complete destruction of his cabal. What Archon, in what other cabal, wouldn't want to acquire such a prize for himself. What price might such a prize attain at exclusive auction amongst the highest cabal lords? How much of its former power and prestige would the Poison Heart recover when Lord Sitarkas paraded his rare, precious prize before his peers? Yes, how much power and glory would be theirs when they offered up the soul of a farseer to the one who thirsts. The cruiser commander smiled at the thought and turned her attention back to the business of the hunt. The dark Eldar cruiser sped on silently through the void, bearing down swiftly on its next chosen target. Elsewhere in the stabbier system, the Volpoon's destruction would have registered as a sudden tell-tale energy burst on the pig-skin sensor screens of any nearby Eldar craft. As it was, the craft master and crew of the nearest Eldar vessel the Arcanite-class frigate Madib Shield, were too occupied with other more pressing matters to notice the incident. Their attacker had appeared from literally empty space. It had seemed to craftmaster horror Krill. It was almost as if it had unfolded from the blackness of space itself. Krill was young as his race judged such matters, and relatively unversed in the deeper, darker secrets of the history of the Eldar, and at first he had not recognised the attackers for what they truly were. The ambush had been swift and sudden, and it was only after the enemy cruiser had launched torpedoes, only after the Medeb shield 
had been struck amidship by two of them and suffered a catastrophic energy drain which had left it floating powerless and defenceless in space. Only after the enemy ship had come alongside and launched a boarding assault on their victim, that Krill's worst fears had been confirmed. The Dark Ones, breathed one of his thought talkers at the first terrible sight of their attackers in the flesh. The thought talker was old, and perhaps had previous, first-hand experience of such things, things which went unspoken amongst the Eldar. But for the younger Eldar, such as Krill, it was as if part of their race's darkest, most sinister legends had come to life. At first, he wondered, hoped even, that all this was just some particularly vivid kind of ashiti, a nightmare dream from his unconscious mind, born out of the Eldar's shared race memory of all their kind had endured and suffered since the terrible time of the fall. But that notion was quickly dispelled, as the thought-talker next to him fell screaming and gurgling to the ground, his torso shredded apart by a hit from one of the enemy's weapons. The Dark Eldar swarmed aboard, entering the ship from both sides of its hull and on most of its decks. Krill's thought-talkers were either dead or were unable to penetrate the psychic cloud of darkness which had enveloped the ship, shutting it off from contact with the other Eldar vessels in the system. From the moment the first Dark Eldar warrior stepped through the breach in its hull, the survival of the Medeb shield could be measured in mere minutes. Krill's helmet communicator was filled with the screams of his crew as they died under the accursed one's blades and weapons. And, far worse, his mind was filled with the babbling pleas and cries of those crew unlucky enough to fall alive into the hands of their shadow brethren. Hails of shuriken pistol fire and the strange but deadly splinter of crystal material produced by the weapons of the enemy filled the passageway, striking the smooth, bone-like material of its walls and tearing long, jagged scars. The infinity circuit mind of the ship screamed in silent psychic agony at the violations being done to it, at the tainting presence of the abominations now forcing their way aboard it. Krill and the remains of his guardian squad retreated up the passageway, heading towards the sacred wraithbone core which housed the ship's precious infinity circuit mind. They left their dead and injured where they fell. The Dark Eldar pursued them relentlessly, firing as they came. The guardian in front of Krill suddenly spun and fell, his arm sheared away at the shoulder by a hit from a splinter rifle. Krill turned and fired, decapitating the Guardian's attacker as a volley of razor-sharp shards of metal from Krill's shuriken pistol, propelled at enormous speed by the gravatic forces inside the pistol's firing chamber, tore through the Dark Eldar warrior's throat and embedded themselves in the chest of a second warrior following close behind. The Dark Eldar fell back, and for just a moment, Krill allowed himself the tempting fantasy that perhaps they were retreating back to their vessel. The illusion was shattered in another hail of splinter weapon fire, striking down two more of the defenders and pinning the others down as a trio of grotesque figures broke away from the ranks of the Dark Eldar and charged towards Krill and the others. Asurian preserve us, gasped Militia, a female steersman, staring in revulsion at the creatures dancing and capering up the passageway towards them. What are those things? Krill shared his crewman's reaction of repulsed shock, but did not hesitate as he sent a first and then a second hail of shuriken fire into the body of one of the creatures. It staggered, almost falling as the razor-edged, tiny spinning discs of shining metal ripped bloody holes through its body. Seconds later, though, 
As Krill watched in complete disbelief, it was on the move again, dancing and capering up the passageway towards them as it raced to catch up with its companions. Looking at the things, Krill could only guess what kind of creature they may once have been. Their bodies had been wrecked and distorted out of shape by the most terrible tortures and surgical alterations. They were naked save for leather harnesses which held their torture-ravaged bodies into some semblance of normal form, and their flesh was pierced in dozens of places with barbed hooks and pins, holding open the mouths of unhealed wounds or surgical excavations and revealing gleaming bone and pulsing blood-slicked organs within. Repulsed, sickened, and filled with an awful dread of the grotesque creatures, Krill and those around him opened fire as one. The creatures screamed in vile, ecstatic pleasure as the shuriken fire tore into them, chopping through limbs and slicing clean through flesh and bone. Krill saw one of the things, a shuriken shot carrying off a good third of its malformed head, continue on towards them, gibbering madly to itself. Another one, flayed by round after round of repeated shuriken hits, only succumbed after all its limbs had been shot away. Its limbless torso, pierced in a dozen places, flopped to the ground, where it wriggled in a spreading pool of its own fluids. And then the creatures were amongst them and upon them. The claws of one creature took away the face of a guardian who Krill remembered had had the makings of a skilled apprentice bone singer. A second creature fell upon Malisha, ravaging her with black-stained adamantium teeth and claws. She shrieked in pain and terror, her blood splashing against the armour of Krill's breastplate. Krill dropped his pistol, its disc supply now spent and reached for his chainsword. There was a flash of sudden hot pain in his sword arm as he drew the weapon. For a moment, he wondered what had happened. Wondered why his sword could still be in its finely decorated leather sheath when it was also still grasped in his hand. And then he saw the creature with the knife in its hand, and felt the hot streaks of blood pumping out of the stump of his wrist. The creature slashed at him again, opening up his body from midriff to shoulder, and Krill fell to the ground, the strength spilling out of him in a torrent of red. The creature stooped down towards him, the knife ready to strike again, when a voice, harsh and commanding, sounded from behind it. The creature cringed back in fearful, animal-like obeisance, and another figure stood over the mortally injured craftmaster. Cruel, pitiless, green-coloured eyes set into a pale face of exquisitely refined beauty stared down at him. A hand sheathed in a delicately crafted armoured gauntlet, the fingers tipped with tiny, fine-edged cutting blades, reached down towards him. Krill felt a brief, searing pain in his forehead. And then the hand came away, holding the blood-smeared spirit stone, which had been embedded in the flesh there. Despair, like nothing he had ever felt before, filled Krill, and he knew his very soul was forfeit to a force too terrible to be openly contemplated by the Eldar mind. The dark Eldar warrior smiled, brandishing its shining prize. Fear not, brother, it cooed to him. I won't let you die, at least not yet. My surgeons are skilled and eager for new flesh to work upon. They'll be upset at the loss of one of their pets. I think they'll be glad of the opportunity to fashion themselves a new replacement for the one you helped destroy. Zane, what are you doing here? 
You're not scheduled to be running any patrol missions for another two duty shifts. They were on the cavernous flight deck within the Macarius, which was home to both Storm and Hornet squadrons. Keither had been making the final adjustments to his flight suit, ensuring that the plug-in nodes of his helmet were clear and that his suit's emergency oxygen supply was unobstructed. When Zane had appeared, also dressed in full flight suit, he had his helmet off and Keither forced himself to look the pilot in the eye, reminding himself that Zane was still the best Fury pilot in his squadron. The fact that the man's face, like much of the rest of his body, was a nightmare of scarred and surgically rebuilt horror, should have had no bearing on the respect due to him as the top-scoring fighter ace aboard the ship. My apologies, Commander, said Zane, in that disquieting, electronic, monotone voice which was all the tech priest surgeon's efforts had left him with. I request permission to join your flight patrol. I was praying in my quarters when the thought came upon me that you and the Emperor might have need of me today. Some of the other pilots shuffled nervously upon hearing this. It was undisputed that Zane's solo actions in combat against the demon creature had possibly saved the entire ship during the evacuation of Bellatus some years ago, but no one was truly willing to speculate as to the cause of the circumstances which had allowed him alone to know of the creature's presence aboard the ship and to have been able to hunt it down and destroy it. Some claimed that it was, as Zane said, and that he had been an instrument of divine intervention. Others thought that he was simply mad and had simply been in the right place at the right time. Keither was not sure what to believe. He believed in the power of the Emperor, even if that power was located on remote and far distant terror, and he believed in the divine righteousness of the need to protect mankind from its many enemies. But he was, in essence, a practical, pragmatic man, and, day to day, mainly put his faith in his own abilities and those of his pilots. The promise of divine protection was all very well, but Keither preferred the more solid assurance of a fury interceptor, fully checked out and fuelled and armed, and a pair of trustworthy wingmen on each side of him. Zane waited patiently while Keither considered the request. There was an uneasy mood aboard the ship, Keither knew. Pilots and crewmen, whose training and combat experience had taught them that all aliens were the enemies of mankind, were now disturbed by the uncomfortably close presence of the Eldar vessel nearby, and the idea that Zealot Zane had received some kind of divine premonition would do little to dispel that unease. Still, thought Keitha, no matter how uncomfortable Zane made him feel, there was something about the man which compelled attention. He turned to the tech priest in charge of the launch preparations. Prep Storm 4 for immediate launch. Zane nodded and curt thanks. What the hell? Keitha told him. Six Furies are better than five, I suppose. And the extra show of strength won't go amiss, as far as putting on a show for our new Eldar friends goes. Climbing into the cockpit of his command fury, and allowing the ground crew technicians to strap him into the flight harness. Keitha, still unsure why exactly he had acceded to Zane's request, was struck in answer by a sudden thought, and laughed softly to himself. Menartho, undergoing the same process in his customary navigator's position in the rear cockpit space, picked up the sound over his helmet comm channel. Something funny, Commander. Keitha laughed again. I think we may be in luck on this mission, Menartho. Don't tell anyone, but I think I may be coming down with a touch of divine inspiration myself. That'll make two holy madmen in the squadron, so the Emperor can't fail to be watching over us now. 
Menatho's caustic and jesting and also highly blasphemous reply was thankfully lost in the shattering scream of a Fury engine powering up as the flight prepared for takeoff. Out in space, in the void between the Macarius and the Volun Show, a flight of Eagle bombers with a small, accompanying escort made long, looping patterns across their designated patrol circuit. They had received stern commands to remain a strict distance from the human ship, but at several points in the course of the patrol, the bomber flight's commander had allowed his formation to accidentally wander across the invisible borderline between the human and Eldar ships. In the command blister of the lead eagle, Corneus smiled at the thought of the alarm aboard the Monkai vessel, the stupid ape-like human creatures gibbering words of anxiety at each other in the crude, barbaric sounds that passed for Monkai language. Perhaps he would be censured for such a breach of orders when he returned to the Volun show, although he doubted it. The craft mistress, Lilithan, was his life mate, but more than that, she was also a fellow survivor of the destruction of their original craft world, Bel Shaman, and Corneus knew that she hated the Monkai with the same bright, terrible passion as he did himself. No, she might berate him before the Eldar of their adopted craft world of Anne Aeolsis, but alone in their quarters, clinging naked to each other, and whispering between themselves words spoken only in the dialect of their extinct home, she would say other, far different things to him. There was a love born of hate and bitterness, two desperate, lonely exiles cast adrift amidst an entire race of lonely exiles. The hate of each of them fed and fueled the hate of the other, and soon, though neither knew it, that hate would bear deadly and violent fruit. Corneus thought signalled his steersman to bring the eagle around towards the human ship again. The Monkai vessel loomed large before him, its image magnified a hundredfold by the wraith-bone-infused crystal material of the cockpit blister. He studied the shape and form of the enemy vessel, his keen eye picking out possible avenues of attack through the overlapping fields of fire of its defence turrets, and then seeking and finding vulnerable points of weakness across the surface of its armoured hull. His hands twitched in frustration, unfulfilled eagerness to pass across the crystal control nodes on the instrumentation panel in front of him, the pattern of their movements combined with a simple thought command from Corneus, enough to launch the eagle's lethal cargo of missiles. In his mind's eye, Corneus saw the missiles of his bomber and those around it streak away towards their target. In his mind's eye, he saw the wave of missiles strike the Monkai ship. Many of them smashed themselves to pieces against the Monkai ship's dense armour, but enough penetrated through to accomplish their task. In his mind's eye, he saw the missiles detonate in sequence within the body of their target, saw the shape of the human cruiser heave and convulse, as its metal innards were pulverised under the hammer-blow impacts of the missile's sonic warheads. Saw, moments later, the target begin to break apart, its shattered internal structure no longer able to hold it together. Saw, a few scant moments later, the enemy vessel consumed in a white flash as primitive Monkai plasma reactors catastrophically ruptured apart. All this he saw in his mind's eye and all this he desired, with all his life force. With a mental sigh, Corneus signalled the steersman to change course again, taking them away from the human ship. He watched as the image of the ship 
slid away out of view. It didn't matter, of course, for he had already committed the details of all its potential vulnerabilities to memory. Maldenan, he whispered to himself in mocking farewell salute to the Monkai ship. Maldenan, words from the warrior cant language of his original home craft world. Total and merciless extermination. They're looping away again, sir, same as they did the last few times. Semper studied the icons on the surveyor screen, confirming for himself the information relayed to him by one of his junior officers. The Eldar attack craft formation was indeed moving away from the outer periphery of the Macarius' defensive range. Typical attack pilot grandstanding, perhaps. A show of bravado. Maybe their bomber and fighter crews aren't that much different from ours after all, mused Semper. Only half seriously. Nor perhaps they're testing us, suggested Nida, gruffly. Practicing attack runs and testing the range of our defence turrets. And the reaction times of our fighter patrols. Or guarding us, even, maybe. Trying to find out how far they can push us before we'll react. Semper grunted in reply, acknowledging the potential truth of Nida's comment, even if it was not exactly what he wanted to hear at this moment in time. He looked towards his communications crew. Many words yet from the Mosca. Nothing yet, sir, saluted an officer. Same with the Volpum. Damned pulsar interference. Still playing merry hell with our comm channels. Any word on the last transmission we heard from the Volpum? Their last contact with the patrol frigate had been over an hour ago, but it had been garbled and indistinct, almost obliterated by pulsar-created static. Nothing yet, sir. We've given it to Magus Castaborus to play with. He's running it through the logic engines to see if he can filter out any of the interference and make some sense of what the Volpoon was saying. We should have something from him soon. Semper grunted again in acknowledgement, a sure sign that he was troubled or irritated. He considered things for a moment, then gave his waiting officers their orders. Mr. Nida, put out extra fighter screen patrols and have all your attack craft squadrons put on standby, ready for emergency launch. Tell your pilots to see off any more incursions into our defence zone from any of the alien craft. Let's see how they react when we hang the no-entry sign up on the door. Comms, signal the graph or will I can tell them to proceed at speed to the last known position of the Mosca. If we can't raise them, maybe Graf Orlock can. And signal Drakenfels to do likewise with the Volpum. Tell that old rogue Ramus that... He was abruptly cut off by the urgent voice of a communications officer. Sir, flash comm signal coming through from the Drakenfels. They're in combat with hostiles. They're reporting they're under attack by at least one Eldar vessel. The words were barely out of the man's mouth before a second shout from a surveyor officer. Eldar cruiser is coming about. Strong energy surge detected. It's powering up weapons and defence systems. A glance at the August screens confirmed everything the surveyor officer said and instantly brought to life all Semper's worst fears about this mission and the true, treacherous intentions of the alien Eldar. Battle stations! he bellowed. We're about to come under enemy attack! Down on the surface of Stabia, the dust storm seemed, if anything, to have worsened in intensity. Elante and Kyogen sheltered in what they had laughably termed the Imperial Forces' command point, even if it was little more than a half-roofed ruin. The Eldar were encamped in the ruins on the other side of what appeared to have once been some kind of central plaza or square, 
Horst and the Eldar's apparent commander, Alante was unsure what exactly the alien's status was, some kind of high priest was the nearest he could judge, were sequestered in a temple-like building in the centre of the open area, talking over whatever urgent and covert matter it was that had caused them to arrange this parlay in the first place. The building, the meeting was taking place within, appeared to be the only intact structure in the entire area. Stavka and a hand-picked guard of the Inquisitor's senior armsmen were hunkered in the ruins nearby, staring through the swirling dust in sullen, suspicious hostility at the similar Eldar retinue stationed likewise nearby on the alien's half of the area. The Eldar commander's chief henchman, or champion warrior, the same one who had been first to appear, and who had regarded Olante and the others with such detached contempt, stood there, fixed and immobile, a figure of awe and fear, in his unfamiliar peacock-hued armour, his alien weapons held at the ready. If the Eldar warrior even noticed the dust storm raging around it, then it certainly gave no indication. Arrogant alien bastard, growled Kyogen, studying the figure of the Eldar through an infrared augmented orspex scope, a piece of equipment borrowed from one of Horst's retinue, and just about the only thing they had which could pierce the veil of swirling dust. Look at it, standing there like it owns the whole galaxy. How much longer do you think this is going to take? The sooner we're done with this and away from these Xenos scum, the better. Alante didn't much care for the Commissar's comments, just as he found increasingly unnerving the way Kyogen kept flipping the activation stud of his chainsword on and off, setting the weapon's monomolecular cutting blade in brief but noisy whirring motion, or the way in which his hand constantly strayed towards the holstered bolt pistol at his side, playing with the holster's brass clasp. The man was clearly rattled by being in such close proximity to the Eldar, and Alante seriously, if silently, questioned his fitness for a mission such as this. There were, however, matters which were troubling him even more urgently. Their inability to make contact with the shuttles still waiting at the landing zone, for instance. The shuttles, with their powerful onboard comms equipment, were their main link with the orbiting Macarius, and Alante and the others had heard nothing either from the shuttles or the Macarius in the last hour. He had dispatched a squad of armsmen, led by Barossa, back to the landing zone to investigate. So far, they had heard nothing. Hedging his bets and suspecting that there was some undetected aspect of the alien ruins which might be hindering normal communications above and beyond the effects of the dust storm, Alante had also sent a second and smaller armsman squad to accompany a comms officer equipped with a backpack Vox set to search for a clearer transmission zone beyond the area of the ruins. Ravensburg came a shout from the area of the perimeter guard a panic-sounding voice giving the code word which would tell the nervous armsmen sentries to hold their fire. A few moments later, one of the armsmen Alante had sent to accompany the comms officer came scrambling into the ruin. Red-faced with exhaustion, he tore off his rebreather mask, gasping for breath in the dust-choked air. Alante noticed that the man was stripped of weapons and all other non-essential equipment, a messenger runner, sent back ahead of the rest of his comrades and bearing news which could not wait for the arrival of the comms officer. Beg to report, sir, gasped the man, still managing to present a passable salute to Alante and Kyogen. We made contact with the Mac, although it didn't last long. 
They're under attack, sir. They're in battle with the alien ship. Melante's last pistol and Kyogen's bolt pistol were in their hands instantly, even before the first sounds penetrated through the blanket of the dust storm from the events now unfolding on the edge of the ruins. Gunfire, the familiar barking roar of Navy shot cannons, mixed with the hissing crack of alien weaponry, and... Following soon afterwards, human-voiced sounds of alarm and the screams of human pain. Melanti to all units, he shouted into his comm unit, not knowing how many of his men could hear him amidst the confusion of the storm and the sudden alien assault. It's a trap! The Eldar have betrayed us! We're under attack! Ba-ba! <laughs> it's heating up, it's kicking off, and there's an avatar on the way. I hope you're enjoying this, boys. Uh, we're almost at an end. There's another two parts coming, and they're both going to be quite chunky parts. They're probably going to be like an hour and a half, maybe two hours. The second one is probably going to be about two hours long. Uh, it's just the way the story's formatted, so they're going to have to be like that. Otherwise, I would have spread it out a bit more. But two more big parts are coming, and they'll be coming soon. Uh, thank you all for watching. Please do like the video. Let me know in the comments what you think. Uh, these all really help me uh, and the channel. And if you're not subscribed, what are you doing? Subscribe. Come on. There's loads of good stuff here. I'll be back again soon. Uh, if you would like to support the channel that these champions of humanity are doing, please consider heading over using the links in the description to Patreon or to subscribe. Uh, subscribe star. That's what it's called. <laughs> and thank you to those guys over there and, uh, and on Patreon. Really appreciate it. And uh, or alternatively, the easiest approach, just subscribe on you. Just become a member on YouTube right there. It's just join. That really helps as well. <laughs> That's enough begging. I'll be back again soon. Thank you all very much. Um, it looks like Barossa is going to get some action soon as well. So the next part's pretty good. All right. See you later. Bye bye. Ta-ra.